as we look to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you now for this wonderful day, the givings and the takings of the comings and goings of the weekends of July. Thank you that we can gather together like this and to ponder your and process your truth. We've sung our praise to you, We've offered our tithes and offerings to you. But now we are about to be recipients of your truth. We're not here to explore human opinions. We're here to be able to process and apply what it is that the God of the universe has to say to us. And you've said it in your word. So we thank you, Father, for who you are. You're the creator of this world. You make no mistakes. You're the one who sent Jesus Christ into this world. Not merely to die, but to die for our sins. The substitute in our place for eternal life. You send the Holy Spirit into our lives to indwell us. Someday you send Christ to return. So, Father, what we want to do now is to take past, present, future, weave it together, see how it connects. May the result be that we honor you. So, Father, in these minutes that you give us to be together to explore your word, warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wills, come here, Father, again to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. In our living room, we've got a number of biographies in a bookcase. And there is a biography on Hudson Taylor that has a story in it that has gripped my attention through the years. We're told that missionary Hudson Taylor of China was working and worrying so frantically that his health was about to break. And just when his friends feared that he was near a breakdown, Taylor received a letter from a fellow missionary, John McCarthy. Told him a discovery McCarthy had made about abiding in Christ while reading in John 15. Here's an excerpt of McCarthy's letter. Hudson, abiding, abiding in Christ, not striving or struggling, looking off unto him, trusting him for present power. This is not new, and yet it's new to me. Christ literally all seems to me now the power, the only power for living, the only ground for unchanging joy. Well, we're told that as Hudson Taylor read this letter in China on Saturday of September 4th of 1869, we're told his own eyes were opened. Quote, as I read, he recalled, I saw it all. I looked to Jesus, and when I saw the power, and all oh, the joy flowed. And so writing to his sister in England, he penned these thoughts. 
as to my work, never was so plentiful, so responsible, yet so demanding. But the weight and the strain of life are all gone. It's all about abiding. The last month or more has been perhaps the happiest at the most difficult of my life. And I long to tell you a little of what the Lord has done for my own soul. When the agony of soul was at its height, a sentence from McCarthy was used to remove the scales from my eyes. And the Spirit of God revealed the truth about what it means to abide in Christ, as I had never known it before. And as a result, God is working powerfully in us and through us. When I mock these words, this word abide appeared repeatedly. Taylor seems to be in touch with what the Apostle John is writing. And what I'm going to do with you this morning is to explore this word together with you, see it in context as it relates to the way in which John has penned his thoughts, some of our translations, if you brought a new international version with you, it might read, we live in him and he in us. Others, if you have a King James, we dwell in him and he in us. Still others, we remain in him and he in us. All synonyms of that whole idea of abiding. And what we want to do now is to look at four implications of what it means to simply experience the richness of abiding when you're facing the challenges, the difficulties, and the stresses that Taylor himself was describing in his own life experience. And the first flows out of verse 13 alone. I'll read it to you and we'll explore it together. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Here's the first implication that's going to appear on the screen, that number one, in our mutual abiding, I want you to note with me the internal presence of the Holy Spirit. The internal presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, notice how this begins, and we're going to work this through together because he starts off with one of his favorite expressions, by this we know. Knowing God is significant to him. It influenced G.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. But in chapter 2, what John had written, as we have explored on occasion. He had penned this thought, he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him. In other words, not only can you know him, not merely informationally, but personally, but furthermore, you can know that you know him. He wants you to have that degree of certainty when facing the challenges, the difficulties, the extremes of life. Now, do you bring, do you bring that degree of certainty into your life experience day in, day out? So you have this ever sense of knowing him. So often, one of our services, we might have an individual coming who's a secular unbeliever, or a religious unbeliever, 
And the challenge is, is that we've got to be able to move beyond the informational aspect of knowing this one and entering into a personal experience based upon that informational evidence of knowing this one, Jesus Christ. That you can know him, and you can know that you know him. And now the Apostle John picks up on this word once again in this 13th verse and says, by this we know. But it's what he knows and what you and I need to know that captures our attention. Notice the phrasing that we abide in him and he in us. He does not stop with, and we abide in him, period, does he? Nor does he skip over and simply read for us and he and us. But what you and I experience here now is what is known in Scripture as a mutual abiding. Nowhere else in any religion is this experience like in that of Christianity, where you find yourself abiding in Christ, but astoundingly, in a reciprocal manner, Christ abiding in you, remaining in you, residing in you, dwelling in you, living in you. Synonyms. What this means is that you can experience what Taylor himself experienced, the reciprocal effect, you see, of the work of the triune God in your own everyday life. Not one to the exclusion of the other, but one combined with the other. We abide in him. He abides in us. Now the Apostle John was gripped by this idea because he used this analogy in describing a teaching that Jesus delivered in the upper room just prior to going to the cross. Because in chapter 15 of the Gospel of John, Jesus had said, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Sometimes you might feel as though we're nothing more than severed branches. But what God wants for you and wants for me is a richness of the fellowship where there is this reciprocal, mutual abiding. We're abiding in Christ. Christ abiding in us. Now, what is the evidence for this? And what is the mechanism by this, which this takes place? And the answer is what comes next. Out of this mutual abiding that you can have certainty of, he gives you a response with the statement, because. Because he has given us of his spirit. That's grace. But what God is now doing is that he's saying to you and to me that when we seem to lack what is necessary to experience the power of everyday living, I'm not merely giving you a power within your life. I am positioning a person within your life who will provide the power for your life, the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what the Hudson Taylor needed and described. The Holy Spirit. David Howard, in his book, The Power of the Holy Spirit, describes this incident. 
Some years ago, my colleague Ernest Fowler and I determined to visit an Indian tribe in Colombia where we had reason to believe the gospel had not yet gone. We'd laid plans carefully for our trip, packed our knapsacks, had our hammocks and other equipment in good order, had maps of the river and surrounding jungle area where the Indians lived, had our travel plans checked out. On the morning of the departure, I rose early for my accustomed quiet time with the Lord. And for some strange reason, as I went to prayer, I became obsessed with an overwhelming sense of restraint about the trip. You ever had one of those experiences? The sense of, I can't go forward. But why? I couldn't pray with any freedom about it. You ever pondered the Holy Spirit keeping you from praying about something? Why? I opened the Word, but nothing I read seemed to fit my need at the moment, and for nearly an hour I struggled with this problem, wondering what God was trying to say to me. And all I could sense was an intangible feeling that we should not go. So I went to Ernest, who had spent that night in our home, so we could leave together in an early hour. And I asked him how he felt about the trip. He had not experienced the same sense of restraint that seemed to bear down on me. But when I explained my feelings, he said, well, David, let's pray about this together see what God says. In other words, a sense of mutual abiding. After breakfast and some further discussion, Ernest said with a quiet, settled conviction, I don't think we should go. I don't know why, but I believe that God is restraining us. We won't go. Three years later, Howard writes, he and I received an invitation from two Indian brothers of that tribe to spend a week with them to teach the scriptures. They had become Christians through the witness of Colombian believers. But they needed instruction in the word of God. They were our point of contact to enter this tribe with the word of God. Three years earlier, when we had planned our trip, these two men were not yet Christians. Nor was anyone else in the tribe. In other words, we would have had no bridge. We would have had no entering wedge. We would have had to commend ourselves to the people without anyone standing up for us had we gone at that time. God, through his spirit, said wait, so that eventually God, through his spirit, would say go. Now when you and I are experiencing that sense of this mutual abiding, mutual remaining, mutual residing, mutual living, we are in Christ, but Christ is in us. Not one to the exclusion of the other, but mutual. Well then what we find is a growing sense of discernment regarding such matters as the timing of life. And then you look back upon that experience, and maybe right now you're saying, why? But three years hence, you'll say, oh, 
that's why. Mutual abiding does that for you, you see. But it begins here in this matter of mutual abiding. We abide in him. He abides in us. He gives us of his Holy Spirit. So first of all, what you and I have, first implication of mutual abiding is what we'll describe here as the internal presence of the Holy Spirit, verse 13. But now, second implication emerges, and it comes out of verse 14. Read it and then process it. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Here now is your second implication, that in our mutual abiding with God, note secondly the historical witness of the apostles. In other words, in verse 13, that was very subjective, how the Holy Spirit is working internally. In verse 14, this is very objective, what God has done externally we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And you look at that, and all of a sudden you say, Gary, when I couple verse 13 and 14 and make them mutual, I've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Verse 13 talks about God sending the Spirit. Verse 14, we've seen and testified that the Father, first member of the Trinity, has sent his Son, second member of the Trinity, to be the Savior of the world, and it all begins with this, and we have seen. But you say, but get, I wasn't there. Well, the, uh, to be honest with you, I wasn't there either. First century, despite what my children might think, I wasn't living then. And we have seen. So who's the we at this point? Well, the answer is the Apostle John. And the other followers of Jesus who were part of his earthly ministry. And what we then are able to examine is the credible evidence that is found in the eyewitness account. Which, for example, the Apostle John, who wrote the Epistle of John, but also the Gospel of John, records for us in, in John 20. Now Thomas, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came, and so the other disciples told him, we have, and I've marked this. Here's your word again. Seen. We've seen the Lord. Now, it's plural, which means there is multiple evidence now that the Savior, Jesus Christ, has been raised from the dead. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, but he said to them, and this is so Thomas. Maybe we've got some Thomases here in one of these services this morning. He said to them, unless, he's setting down conditions, you see. You ever done that? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never, he's an absolutist, never believe. Now, there's something incredibly significant about what Thomas said at that point. You see, he started with the matter of the nails, the nail prints, and the hands. But we realize that there were others put on crosses that likewise would be able to have said in supposed resurrection experiences uh, about the nail prints and the hands. But there was something distinguishing about Christ's crucifixion. What was it? The piercing of the side. 
Even the soldiers would attest to that fact. Thomas has done his homework. He has done a visual analysis of this situation. I want to be able to place my hand into his side. That would be the distinguishing aspect of the resurrected body. Otherwise, he doesn't say, I might not believe. He is an absolutist in the negative. I will not believe. Now, the Apostle John was there. He's in that upper room. He's processing all that's taken place because this will be a written account in the gospel, and he will use that word seen repeatedly in the epistle. You pick it up in John chapter 20 and verse 26, eight days later. His disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Shalom, you see. And now he, you can see him narrowing his focus. I could see the heads turning. He says to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand. And here's the astounding feature that would provide the criteria necessary for, for unmistakable evidence. Put it in my side. Take the initiative. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered, my Lord and my God. What does Jesus say to him? Have you believed because you have seen? Seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Take that account, examine what's on the screen, and we have seen. Who's the we? Those in that upper room, even Thomas. And testify. In other words, they are not going to be reservoirs of truth. They're going to be channels of truth. And when you are the recipient of God's grace, you're called not to be a reservoir, but a channel. Take what has taken place on the inside, deliver it on the outside. Why? Notice what he goes on to say that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. The word sent is used in the perfect tense in the Greek language to carry the idea of a past event that has present-day ramifications. This has present-day relevance to you and to me. It has to do with the fact that one has come definitively to save. And I pondered that when I came across this story of the 90s in which a band of Navy SEALs had been sent to a dark corner of the world and they were going to rescue American hostages. He flew in the helicopter, stormed the compound, search of the hostages. Associated Press goes on to tell us, they found the Americans crouching in the corners of a dark room. The SEALs could not convince these frightened soldiers that they were Americans as well. Finally, one of the seals sat down by a hostage, took off his helmet, 
moved in close to the man's face and began to talk with him as if he were one of them and placed his arm around the frail soldier. And soon, a trust level was achieved and all the hostages were then willing to leave the compound. And when I saw that, I jotted the event in my Bible because here you have a sense where Jesus Christ in his incarnation took the helmet off, took the helmet off so that people would recognize him for who he is. And then he builds a sense of trust. And as he builds that sense of trust because he is trustworthy, we put our trust in the trustworthy one. And now we embrace what's here and we have seen. But we don't stop there, do we? And testify, and this is John's personal experience, that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. And when you see has sent, would you realize we've got Christmas in July here. Sounds like some crazy Hallmark movie. The Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the of the world. Now, what you're going to now do is to bring the past and the present together. The past, historical witness. The present, the internal presence. And it leads you then to a third implication. It comes now out of verse 15. Check it out. Whoever, write your name in there. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him, and he in God. Here's your third implication, that in our mutual abiding with God, note the personal confession of the Christian. Whoever confesses. In other words, you are agreeing with what God himself has revealed. God reveals. We agree. And what is it that we confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Son of God. But John is so specific with his words, he doesn't read for us that Jesus was the Son of God. He has recorded the resurrection in the Gospel of Count. He says, whoever confesses that Jesus is. This is a present tense reality for you if you're desiring for that sense of mutual abiding. You and him, he and you, is the Son of God. You ponder that, and you realize that God has given you opportunities then to confess this to others. It happened on an airplane. Years ago, I was heading off to a national conference, and when the conference was done, I was in an airport with two other pastors, and we were on our way back. We have a word of prayer. If God wants to use us in any way, shape, or form, praying that God would use us now and later. Get on our plane. The two Davids are positioned here and there ahead of me. I'm a little further in the back. A woman sits down next to me. And she starts looking at the reading material I've got in front of me. And she's got this obviously confused look on her face. I say, hi. She says, hi. But she's frowning. And she says, what are you reading? Well, I had a historical journal a medical journal, and Sports Illustrated, and a Greek New Testament, a 
sitting there in front of me. You see. And so I simply said, well, I'm a pastor. And you could see her freeze. Um, she went out of her way to make it very clear that this is a very uncomfortable situation here. And so we made small talk, and then all of a sudden, as she said, so you're one of those Jesus people. I said, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And she got up and left and sat down next to one of the other Davids. <laughs> Which didn't take long until she got up once again and sat down next to the other David. All, I believe, is a result of our time of prayer in the airport. What kills me is that finally she got up, she stood in that aisle, looked back at me with her hands on her hips and simply stared and said, does the airline hire you guys to do this kind of stuff? <laughs> Confess. Whoever confesses that Jesus not was, he's very intentional with his wording. So should we. Is the Son of God. He believes and buys into resurrection. Then for the second time within this section, you've got the reciprocal abiding. You've got the mutual abiding. God abides in him and he in God. But now what you've done is you've taken the first two implications and you do something with them practical. You become verbal. It's the, it is now the personal confession. God has deliberately entered into your life and made a difference. It's the confession, you see, of the believer. And now what you've done is you've tied together three implications and you march into verse 16. Because when you make your way into verse 16, you read these words, so. He's answering the so what? So we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And here now is your fourth implication that in our mutual abiding with God, you know it fourthly with me, the eternal love of our God. You started with the internal presence, the spirit. You moved to the historical witness of the apostles. You mix your way verbally into the personal confession of the believer. And now you come to this incredible statement about the eternal love of our God. And he comes back to where he begins. You know. Must have been a southern Jew, you know. We have come to know. But it's intentional. And I want you to see that he now couples the ideas. To know and to believe. Not one to the exclusion of the other, because it's very possible to be a religious unbeliever. You know, but you haven't believed. No. You see the dual objective at this point? Just as there is a dual objective in the mutual abiding, there is a dual objective here in combining the idea to know and to believe. And what has so gripped your heart at that point? The love that God has for us. I grew up not far from a mosque. 
some of my closest friends going through my days in education were, were Muslims. This is a complete unknown in their life experience. The love that God has for us. But I want you to see why God has love for us. The answer is, God is love. In other words, throughout eternity, there is this mutual love. God loves the Son. God the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves the Son. The Holy Spirit loves the Father. And on we go with this. And there is this eternal, infinite, eternal, unchangeable experience of the richness of the essence of what love is all about. Charles Spurgeon grasped it well. He was walking down a field in a farmland area. There was a barn that had a weather vane on spinning around the wind. And the weather vane had these words, God is love, engraved on it. And Spurgeon, who is always quick with his thoughts, comes up to this farmer and says, Ah, are you saying God is love because God's love changes depending upon the way the wind blows? This farmer, farmers are pretty astute. The farmer said to Spurgeon, No. That weather van, vane is saying, no matter which way the wind blows, God is love. Now, maybe the wind is blowing against you right now in your life experience. Maybe the wind is taking you on a detour in your life journey. And you don't feel as though you've got the wind at your back. God is love. And God is love no matter which way the wind blows, you see. And whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. And now not once, and not twice, but now for the third time, you have got what we are describing this morning as a mutual not a singular, a mutual abiding, not one to the exclusion of the other. And that's why Hudson Taylor could put it all together. As he ponders a letter that comes to him from a man by the name of McCarthy, and Taylor is stressed, worried, his health is breaking, and then this letter comes to him, which says in part, abiding not striving or struggling, looking off unto him, trusting him for present power. This is not new, and yet it's new to me. Christ literally all seems to me now the power, the only power for service, the only ground for unchanging joy, the only ground for true living abiding. And the Apostle John would say, we abide in him. He abides in us. And where the mutual abiding occurs, the power for living is great. 
Are you experiencing that mutual abiding in your own life experience? Let's stand forward to prayer. In each of these services, but now in the second service especially, there's anyone who comes here this morning, it seems like there's been greater output than input into their lives. And life seems so singular. It could be that life has worn them down when life in Christ is meant to build us up. Father, if there's anyone that comes into this service today not knowing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, may they embrace that special word in the Apostle John's vocabulary, no. May they come to know you, not merely informationally, but even more so personally, and find this true sense of reciprocal, mutual abiding that is found in relationship with you and you alone. Thank you for being our God. Thank you that the Father would send the Son and the Son send the Holy Spirit. And we see the Trinitarian aspect of eternal, unchangeable, infinite love demonstrated at the cross so that we might experience it within. May each one leave here today different than we came. Mutual abiding for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.